All right, Hugh. Hey, hey guys. Hey team. My name's uh, uh, Hunter, and your name is Hugh. And this is Project Day Plus Bonus Features Edition. That's right. Uh, Hugh, uh, in recent weeks, meaning last week, we, we turned it into a sort of game instead of having just a normal podcast, if memory serves. And the game being that we're going to see who's watched the most films in a week, and then whoever wins gets the prize of not having to talk that as much. That's the prize. No, the prize is uh, they don't have to go into their uh, the depressing TV habits that they have. Mm. But they do have to blather about all the films that they watched that exceeded the number of the other person. Of course. So, in fact, they probably lose more than they win. That's what I was thinking. Um, so whoever wins, we both lose, I think is the point that I'm coming to. Whoever wins, everyone loses. That's true. <clears throat> First and foremost, the listener, then the winner... And then the loser of having to listen to the winner. That's true. That's true. So uh, I think we need some sort of like drum roll esque music to introduce. Uh, Wait, are we not going to ease into the show via some uh, quick catch up banter? <laughs> I, I don't have any banter to go along with you. You've got no banter you've this week? You're fresh out? <laughs> no, I ran out of banter. I ran out of the bedroom. Yeah. If only someone had watched Studio 60 on the Sunset Strip with me on Saturday, maybe I'd be full of banter. Said I have nothing. <laughs> All right. How's your job going? Uh, we will see this time next week. <laughs> You'll either be uh, working a lot or not working at all. I'll either be completely out of work or back at work. Well, I know what I'm hoping for. I've just got to bide my time until the jewelers reopen. Oh, yeah, for your diamonds. For my singular diamond. <laughs> Why aren't the jewelers open? They might be. <laughs> I'd love it if you went through all this and it was just fake. Sure it is. <laughs> Maybe it's not though. Wouldn't that be wild? I feel like that'd be the kind of story you could tell your grand grandchildren, but you're not gonna have any grandchildren. Logically, it makes sense to me that it's actually a diamond of some description and not a fake, mm. because it just doesn't make sense to me that this random stranger would carry around fake diamonds. But it was a crazy guy, so. But I don't expect it to fetch the price that he uh, estimated. Well, how much did he estimate? He said like twenty to 30,000. Oh, yeah, no way. If it's that small. There's no way. But you get a couple hundred if it's real. Yeah. But that means you can buy, um, you know, Miracles on Blu-ray and uh, True Stories. Mm. The two movies that you wanted to buy on Blu-ray, both of which I already own. All right, should we um, get, on, get on with it? Let's dispense with the banter that only I provided. Do you, do you have anything else you want to banter about? Nah. All right, that's what I thought. Let's get on with it. Oh. You need to come create some sort of drum roll esque, like, okay, it's time to reveal how many films you watched. I'm sure Logic has a stock drum roll loop. No, no, no. It has to be something that's, that has to be something that you make. Oh, bespoke. Yeah, exactly. But it doesn't have to be a drum roll, just something that has the effect of a drum roll, you know? Okay. It's just some like ascending chords or yeah. something. Or just something that is like, okay, now the thing's going to happen. Okay. It doesn't necessarily have to be ascending chords, but, you know. I could just sample your voice saying, okay, now the thing's going to happen. And put a beat underneath <laughs> and just, it. And just have it go faster. <laughs> <laughs> Perfect. Or you could, you could, you could sample by me saying that and then sample you 
Baki by voice and just repeat those <laughs> over and over again. <laughs> Okay, now the thing's gonna happen. Okay, now the thing's gonna happen. All right, Hugh. Well, since you were the winner of last week, eh? Uh, I think it's only fair that you should have to reveal how many films you watched first. Okay, I will do that. But you must first uh, lock in a guess. <laughs> um... Let's see how. Uh, okay, let's think of the disparity between what I guessed and what the real thing was last week. Right, it was seven to one. Right. Yep. Now, Hugh, I noticed that you updated your letterbox, right? That's correct. But I noticed that instead of updating it with any new films that you had watched, you just updated to the point of that you got to last week, right? That's so right. So either you were doing that in a deliberate attempt to confuse me. <laughs> <laughs> and you've, and you've <laughs> shifted to a, a uh, you know, you're going to do it after every week to prevent me from guessing how many films you've watched, right? Or you haven't watched anything at all, <laughs> which, seems, <laughs> which, which is definitely, definitely possible. But I know that you've had a lot of free time, but you tend to waste your free time, too. That's true. Mm. I'm going to say you've watched four films. Four films? That's, I'm going to pull that number out of nowhere and say you've watched four films. Okay, interesting, interesting. What if I told you that I've actually watched five films? <laughs> well, uh, I guess I would believe you. I'd be lying. Mm. No, I did watch five. You did watch five? I did watch five. You did watch five? I did watch five. <laughs> you did watch five? I did watch five. That's great. Well, can you do you want to take a guess how many I watched? You watched three, is my guess. <laughs> That's true. You're you're is it right. True? It is based on yes. my letterbox. And I, I haven't assume. checked letterbox. I don't believe you. I have not checked letterbox. That was just a guess. Well, yeah, I watched three. I haven't been in really in the film watching mood today, but I did watch a lot of uh, scenes from a marriage. So you know. So I smashed you again this week. Yeah. Fucking destroyed you. <laughs> but jokes on you because I. Don't think I watched a single episode of television between this week and last week. So, to make up the difference, you will have to discuss uh, politics. <laughs> nope. <laughs> What's your punishment? No, no, no. We we've already decided that the what the loser has to talk about. Okay, I guess I did watch uh, a TV series, which I can talk about. There we go. But anyway, uh, let's get to it. Why don't you do two of yours, then I'll do my. Wait, no, do three of yours, then I'll do. Three no, of why don't nine? we just go one by one, and then I, I just bring it home with two at once at the end. That works. Okay, whatever, I don't care. Go ahead. You ready? You pumped? Yeah, I got my, my dick out. The first film I watched was a film from 1925. And that film was... Can I guess? You can guess. Okay, Birth of a Nation. That is incorrect. Birth of a Nation is earlier than that, is it not? Yeah, I know. Uh, I don't know any movies from 1925. The movie I watched from 1925 was The Freshman. Hmm, the Harold Lloyd film. Harold Lloyd film, indeed. I wasn't really in the mood to watch any especially challenging films this week, for whatever reason. Hmm. Um, so I kind of retreated into one of my comfort areas, which is silent comedy albeit with one of the silent comedians I haven't investigated that thoroughly. 
you know, ironically enough, I watched a film. I watched a film with the Harold Lloyd impersonator last week. Wow. Yeah. You you have to bring that up at the relevant moment. Okay, right now. Wait. So one of the films you actually watched as part of this week's bonus features? No, I mean last week when I watched. Uh, uh, it happened in Hollywood. There was a uh, not a cameo, I guess, but there was a Harold Lloyd impersonator in it briefly. Oh, interesting. Mm-hmm. Um, so as I was saying, I haven't really had that much exposure to Harold Lloyd in comparison to Buster Keaton and Charlie Chaplin. Although I had seen Safety Last uh, a long time ago. Mm. But uh, it's interesting that he hasn't endured in the same way as Keaton and Chaplin because he was arguably the most popular of the three at the time. His films are huge successes. I don't think it speaks to their respective quality or anything like that. Um, I think it's just no, the I way so their legacies have been preserved. And I think Harold Lloyd is getting his day in the sun uh, at the moment, mm. I think increasingly. Yeah, Criterion's put out several of his films, including The Freshman and this yeah. one that you're talking about now. Um, so The Freshman is your classic college comedy. This was kind of a stock format for many of the the silent comedians. Keaton himself had a film called College uh, a few years later. Good, good film, good film. So the the freshman concerns the uh, attempts of the Harold Lloyd character to become popular at college. Essentially, he is the freshman, and his greatest goal is to emulate his idol from a college comedy that's inside this college comedy. He's trying to be popular. That's the plot. Okay. Does he do it? Yes. But more importantly, who did did he make you laugh? Yes. All right, let's uh what else do you have to say about the freshman? <laughs> no, I'll speak more to it. His attempts at popularity result in him being essentially gaslighted by the rest of the fraternity uh, into believing that he's popular when he's not, and they're actually just making fun of him. But then, in the end, he ultimately triumphs on the football field in unconventional fashion and wins the day and the girl. So your standard kind of format. There is a thread of story, but it is also kind of loose and uh, largely gag-based. But it is clean, efficient, charming filmmaking, I think. Uh, It's kind of a straight-shooting college comedy in keeping with Lloyd's everyman appeal. The mood is genial. The pacing, fleet. The gags, consistent. This is solid stuff. I enjoyed it. I don't think it rivals the best of Keaton as an example, but this is a solid, well-made comedy. Your turn. All right. Um, so I also watched one of the great screen comedians uh, in uh, a legendary film of his, mm-hmm. uh, which is I watched uh, Jackie Chan. Huh. Hmm. In 
Dragons Forever. After which we once named a segment. Dragon Forever, I'll be fine. Dragon Forever, anytime. Uh-huh. Which is uh, directed by Sabo Hung and co-stars him and also Yun Biao, the uh, third brother, as it were. Mm-hmm. Uh, and Hugh, I gotta say, uh, it's a pretty enjoyable film, uh, which I have enjoyed even more because I've started to read uh, Jackie Chan's autobiography, or one of them anyway, called Never Grow Up. Uh, and this book is uh, just incredible. Um, you know, I- I'd say it has basically four different like story threads, okay? Mm-hmm. One of them is, you know, Jackie Chan being abused as a child by you know both his parents to some degree and also by the opera school that he was forced to attend. Yep. Uh, the other threat is, um, you know, his 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 rise to stardom and and the dangerous and crazy things he had to do uh, as part of his you know stunts, right? Mm-hmm. All right. The third one is um, really sentimental stories that make Jackie Chan seem like a good guy, which seem a <laughs> little uh, fallacious, perhaps. Uh, like there's this hilarious story where uh, <laughs> it, it seems like such bullshit. But uh, I talked about Low Way a couple weeks ago, maybe last week. I don't remember. Time is a flat circle, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, but Low Way was one of the guys who gave Jackie Chan one of his first breaks. Uh, and he made him sign this contract or something. And uh, there was like a, a money uh, amount that he'd have to pay if he broke this contract. Okay. Yeah. So he was, he set up a contract uh, after um, Drunken Master and. Um, Snake in the Eagle Shadow. After those came out, uh, you know, they were both successful uh, and made Jackie a pretty big star. Sort of established his persona uh, outside of the Bruce Lee clone that Wellway wanted it to be. Mm-hmm. And uh, he got offered a contract at Golden Harvest. And um, Wellway was like, they were like, okay, we'll pay whatever dollar amount it was fine. But it turns out that Wellway had changed the number on the contract. To say, you know, instead of like, you know, $40,000, it's like $4 million. But he luckily, because Jackie is such a great guy, there is this old man who worked at the film studio who uh, was getting laid off or something or his pitch got erased. And Jackie, out of the kindness of his own heart, even though he was making no money at the time, decided to step in and pay this guy's salary. Okay. And then uh-huh. this guy testified that Whoa Way had made him change the number. So it just goes to show you what, how, how being a great guy and how being Jackie Chan, it just makes your life, it just makes your life work out to the end. Am I right? That does not <laughs> sound t- at all credible. <laughs> <laughs> but the way that it's phrased in the memoir is, is so funny too, because it's like, you know, the way the book is, it's all, it's all first person. Okay. And then mm-hmm. in the like fifth or sixth chapter, there's this break in from the guy who covered the book with Jackie Chan which is to say that he wrote the book pretty much <laughs> because he's like, Hey guys, it's, it's, it's Zuma here. You know, Jackie's co-writer and a member of his stunt team or whatever. The co-writer is a member of his stunt team. <laughs> I, I could, I could, I could be wrong about that, but it's just, it's just like a hanger on, you know? Yeah. And it was like, when, when I was on the road with Jackie, you know, he would tell these amazing stories and I just had to write them down. And that's how that's phrased. So it's not even coming from Jackie's own mouth, but rather he has his co-writer or ghostwriter tell him, <laughs> do the work for him and tell that story about him being a great guy. So it doesn't sound like he's boasting. 
And the other the other fourth uh, thread of the book is just Jackie Chan being a huge asshole, <laughs> which is so funny. Like, there's this great petty thing where uh, when he was still unfamous, he went with Lo Wei to this, like, fancy shop, right? And Hugh, what do you know? He 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 wanted to try something on. He wanted to look at a specific shirt, and this shop girl wouldn't let him. He, she wouldn't even give him the time of day. You know, isn't that crazy? But you know, as great as that, <laughs> years later after he made it, he went to the same shot shop and humiliated this poor woman <laughs> by <laughs> trying on everything that they had and dividing it arbitrarily into two piles and telling her that she wanted <laughs> she wanted to buy all the things in one pile that he wanted them to be folded and pinned properly. <laughs> <laughs> Are you fucking kidding me? He no, put man. that in his autobiography. Yeah, <laughs> That's fucking sociopathic. There's this, there's this other great part in this chapter called the fling, right? Yeah, where he talks about his uh, relationship with a uh, Taiwanese singer who, who his name is Teresa Tang, I think. Mm-hmm. And <laughs> there's this bit where. <laughs> It was the last time he ever talked to her, where she came up looking for him at the studio, okay? And he was uh-huh. like, he was like, sit in this chair, and then ignored her for 30 minutes. And then she, she like, laughed. And then she gave, she sent him, like, some sty note or whatever, right? Uh-huh. And obviously, uh, you know, be, be controlling was, was enough for Jackie. So so he spent the rest of, his, rest of his life trying to make up for it, including doing this absolutely mortifying thing where I don't I don't know how it was arranged exactly. Like the producer of some award show was presenting her with an award. OK. And they're like, we'll get Jackie Chan to present because we know that they have a history. They didn't tell her in advance. So <laughs> apparently, according to Jackie Chan's own mouth, when he came out to present this award to her. She ran away and refused to accept it from him. And then, not that not that long after that, she died of uh, uh, allergic reaction. And uh, he decided to uh, do a duet with her, with her posthumous voice, on one of his albums. So, <laughs> and so much of the book is just talking about how he, he drank all the time and gambled. It's great. It's a great book. This is better than the rest of the podcast. This should just be the podcast. <laughs> Maybe telling you what what's happened in, uh, in in Jackie Chan's autobiography. You should definitely read it. <laughs> it's great. We could do this chapter by chapter. <laughs> <laughs> uh, we should. Uh, I want to read his other one too. But um, I've I've been really enjoying reading that autobiography. But all of this is relevant because um, Jackie's Forever is a, one of those films that Jackie made that sort of tweaks his typical, like, good guy persona, you know? It tweaks all their personas, apparently. Yeah. Uh, have you not seen it? I'm not sure. I don't, I don't really think... I don't necessarily agree with... I mean, I guess I haven't watched enough Young Yao films to really get a sense of what his persona is, you know? Well, I'm going by the Wikipedia description that says he normally plays an underdog character. As opposed to an eccentric and possibly mentally disturbed character. Yeah, but um, yeah, it's it's a, it's kind of, it's a very strange film. Um, you know, with every pretty much every film that I've watched that Sam Hogg directed, it's got some like wild total shifts. You know, mm. uh, Jackie plays this like uh, scumbag warrior who's really only interested in pussy for the most part. He seems to be playing more against type than the other two because it says yeah. here that Sam Hung 
uh, instead of the timid character that he plays in earlier film, plays a rascal. But I've seen him play a rascal multiple times. Yeah, well, I was like, that's what his role is in Project A plus. Exactly. Yes. Yeah. You know. Uh, so I was like, I, I don't know if I necessarily buy that Sambo is really playing against type that much, but he is the romantic lead, which I think is a little against uh, oh, okay. what the, the norm yeah. is. Um, but uh, so you know, whatever. Uh, the plot is that Jackie is this lawyer who's defending this gangster, and I say Jackie, meaning both the character whose name is Jackie. But I think it, this is the only film of his that I've seen where, in the like uh, Hong Kong, uh, like the Cantonese dub or the kid he's soundtrack, he's, his name is Jackie. Mm. I think it's funny. I think that that happens in a number of other ones as well. I'm sure it does, but uh, this is the first one that I've encountered anyway. Um, but so, you know, Jackie is this uh, scumbag warrior who's defending this gangster because there's this uh, uh, widow uh, who owns a fishery, and uh, the gangster has this factory that is pumping all these poisonous chemicals into the fishery and killing all the fish, you know? That's like downriver. Mm-hmm. So Jackie hires Sammo and Yun Biao to spy on them. Sammo is, um, yeah, he's just kind of this like guy. I don't know. <laughs> he's, like, he's an arms dealer in the beginning of the movie, but it never comes up at any other point. It's, mm-hmm. it's kind of tossed up, it's a little strange. Uh, and then Yum Biao is just this bizarre weirdo who like lives in this Kodak factory. It has this uh, <laughs> bizarre fish tank. And there's this there's this amazingly biz- uh, odd scene where like Jackie goes to like recruit him to do this thing, and he has these like <laughs> these two. There's this like huge like like um, translucent uh, plastic pipe that's. Like affixed to his ceiling where all these fish are and there's this other like tank and he's like the fish in the pipe represent capitalism and the fish in the in the tank represent communism and i'm just like what the what is going on right now at this movie <laughs> but yeah he's this weirdo uh, so jackie hires both of them to break into this woman's house so that he can uh plant a bug and like eavesdrop on them and win his case basically uh and uh, eventually Samo falls in love with the widow and Jackie falls in love with her niece who is a environmental scientist uh and they you know turn into good guys and start you know fighting people <laughs> I don't know <laughs> the plot just becomes you know sort of a standard like uh Jackie Chan movie at the end hmm. uh but um uh, it's got some really strange stuff uh it's some really great fights um and uh it's serious and funny and uh i definitely enjoyed it um i think one of the problems with this film is that like unlike you know some of jackie's other films where the female lead is like you know played by maggie chung even if it's a disposable role she like brings a lot of you know her own personality and and just appealing persona to it Mm -hmm. uh in this film the female lead at least the um uh, jackie's love interest is played by uh some beauty pageant winner and she's like terrible <laughs> well maggie chung was also a beauty pageant winner i think that's how she got a break now this woman is named pauline young and unlike um uh maggie chung who had a long and wonderful career she was only in a couple of things including that uh stephen chow movie that i sent you <laughs> mm. um but she's very wooden and blank and uh, i thought her presence really kind of sunk a lot of the scenes um, but, uh, yeah, it's, it's, you know, it's a Samo Hung directed film. Uh, so, you know, 
there's some like ridiculous scenes of violence. Like there's this great moment where uh, he is like, you know, he's in the he's on the outs with the widow. She's found out that he was sent there to spy on her, basically. But he really loves her. So what he does is he stands in the middle of the road <laughs> and stops her car, right? Mm-hmm. And uh, it's like, you know, I love you so much. I'm not going to move. Uh, uh, you know, you're going to come with me. And she takes out a, a ridge and smacks him in the head. <laughs> and it's like <laughs> trickle of blood comes down. It's really bizarre. Um, but it's it's uh, it, it does set itself apart from a lot of other films with this elk by being sort of a romantic comedy, too, which is strange. Uh, and it really plays the romance between the widow and Sambo like pretty straight. And it's it's enjoyable. Uh, it's got so, it's got a great three way fight scene between Jackie and Sambo and Yun Biao, which is fun. Uh, and uh, you know it's it's an enjoyable time with the movies. So I don't know what to say besides that. So this was the last time that all three of them appeared together in a film. It's true. For for Jackie's star eclipsed them both. That's true. That's true. Um, and going back to the Maggie Chung thing, she was the runner up in the Miss Hong Kong pageant in 1983. I believe that's what led Wong Jing to cast her in Prince Charming the following year. So maybe if maybe if she had won, she would have been a bad actress. There you go. That's it for um, Dragons Forever. What do you, what do you got? So I've continued to follow the same thread with my second film, mm. and I watched an earlier Harold Lloyd vehicle, Girl Shy. Mm-hmm. Now this is quite an interesting film. So forgive the amount of detail I go into, but I think you'll appreciate it. Maybe. Overall, just to sum up my feelings, I think this is a charming, well-plotted romantic comedy, and it reflects the increasing sophistication of the silent clowns as they transition from the two-reel short format to feature-length films. One test of that is, is whether, like, the narrative would stand up if you, like, excise the gags. And on that basis, this one certainly passes. Mm. Kind of plays out as, like, a conventional romantic comedy, even a screwball romantic comedy. And uh, its central conceit could easily have fueled like, a 90s or early 2000s romantic comedy. Actually bears some similarity to Hitch, in fact. Mm-hmm. If you remember that classic... I do. The Kevin James, uh, Will Smith. Exactly. Team up movie. It's not quite that premise, but it's, it's similar. So Lloyd plays uh, Taylor's assistant who suffers the, the titular condition of girl shyness. So he's mm. basically physically unable to interact with women and he stammers persistently in their pre- presence. Mm-hmm. I just stammered <laughs> during that sentence. You're, you're typical incel. We'll get to that because it's even funnier than that. Uh-huh. So, obviously, he longs for romance. As we all do. And uh, and we see him gazing sadly at happy couples at a local dance. But the best part is that he channels these voyeuristic longings into what is essentially his version of the game, <laughs> which is like this tell-all tome of invented love affairs that purports to teach like other young men how to manipulate women to their advantage right. based on his example. Like, so the introduction of the book is like, I'm going to detail my love affairs so that you may learn how to control women. Right. We see an earlier scene in the store where he has an uncomfortable encounter with two women at his shop. They sort of push him around a little bit and um, lightly tease him uh, when it's clear that he's having difficulty interacting with them. 
Mm-hmm. And later when he's writing his book, he fantasizes two new sections, two new affairs in his book where, like, we see his alter ego uh, in a dream sequence bend... His body, his body love, if you will. Yes. We see his alter ego bend the same women to his will via uh, rude indifference in one case and outright physical abuse in the other. Well, uh, that doesn't sound great. <laughs> which, which initially, like, you watch these scenes and it, it seems sort of, like, aged really badly, right? As you'd expect. But mm. the overall film doesn't endorse the behaviour. And mm. although it would be in keeping with, like, romantic comedy genre convention, he doesn't actually win over his love via really any form of manipulation. And uh, he even acts honourably, albeit misguidedly, against his own interests at one point. So in, in a sense, it has aged quite well because it kind of demonstrates how this proto-incels frustrations over being unable to interact with women result in these savage, misogynistic fantasies. Mm. And uh, when he eventually presents his completed manuscript to a publisher, he's uh, rightly humiliated by the female readers and laughed out of the office. Eventually, he is able to get his novel published, but only when they reframe it as a work of humour under the title A Boob's Diary which nowadays would be an incel's diary or something. <laughs> yes. Yeah. And there, there are other ways in which uh, the film sort of undercuts these disturbing fantasies, all without sacrificing the audience's sympathy for him. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think it's quite an interesting film on, the, on that basis, but it's also just an exceptional, really entertaining, silent comedy. Um, seen in conjunction with The Freshman... You, you kind of see what the basic Harold Lloyd form there is, at least across these two films. So he, he, he plays a flawed character who harbours some ambition. He's thwarted and outright humiliated by his peers, and then he ultimately triumphs in an unconventional way, right? And wins the girl in the process. Sure. But w- where the freshman was more of a loose collection of gags, girl shy represents a, a greater synergy between its narrative and uh, and these gags. And it's a far more sophisticated outing. It's it's I think it's a really great film. Mm. Um, and his his performance is is excellent. Do you just need a funny that I know about Harold Lloyd? Mm. Is that after his basically his star had faded, he got really obsessed with the he nude photography. Really? <laughs> yeah. Now that I didn't know. <laughs> yep. <laughs> Uh, there's a published book of his nudes. Uh, he was like so interested in that he, he he took like 3D nudes of like Marilyn Monroe and like Betty Page in his house. Wow, it's true. Uh, next, I watched a film called Ski Troop Attack, <laughs> uh, which is a Roger Corman war movie about this band of uh, American soldiers who are trapped behind uh, enemy lines and. Uh, rural Germany and have to do some reconnaissance and kill some people. And uh, it's not really notable except for it is better than you might expect. And <laughs> uh, that there are some sequences that are fairly tense. Um, yeah, but all the characters are stuck and uh, it, looked, it looks really cheap as you might expect from a Roger Corman war movie called Ski Troop Attack. Um, but there is a pretty effective scene of tension where the the boys have to blow up a bridge, 
and that's cross cut with the German platoon like advancing up the hill towards them. And the, also the fact that the the mechanism that they're blowing it up is this thing that's going to be activated by a train going over the bridge so that they have this these two timelines they have to work against. And it's pretty effectively directed. Um, but besides that, uh, it's not that notable. <laughs> and uh, I don't really know why I watched it, to be honest. But I did. And that's what I watched, Ski Troop Attack. What was the next film that you watched, buddy? Next film I watched was... You ready for it? Uh-huh. Another fucking Harold Lloyd vehicle? No. No, I mixed it up. And instead... Chaplin. <laughs> I watched uh, Go West, also from 1925. Mm. Which is one of the Buster Keaton features that I had somehow never seen. Did he direct it? He directed, yes. So this was part of his golden era. Or co-directed it anyway? No, sole credit for this one. Now, uh... In contrast to the previous film I just spoke about, Girl Shy, this is not an especially sophisticated narrative, which I don't mean as a criticism. But the plot, such as it is, is essentially Buster Keaton goes west and befriends a cow. Uh-huh. There's slightly more to it than that, but <laughs> essentially that's what it is. It's a rom-com between Keaton and a Jersey cow. So there's, there's no way this could, this could be bad. So the film culminates in an astonishing feat of staging involving dozens of cattle terrorising this town, which would be basically impossible to achieve nowadays for numerous reasons. Um, But the way this film kind of builds succession of gags from something seemingly structureless to this tight, expertly choreographed sequence of insane animal wrangling makes this a, a very successful effort at translating that more too real style of comedy to feature length. Uh-huh. Because, like, uh, beyond the thrills of, of the that climactic scene, this wouldn't really translate as a proper narrative if you removed the gags, but I don't think it matters in this case. I think it works in that kind of mode. And Keaton was often in that mode of abstraction in a way because he's kind of like a blank figure battling with and mastering mechanisms and stuff. You know, he's kind of like the technician as artist. And even other people in his films are are more like props than they are other characters. And often the romance side of things exist more as a genre convention than anything else. And they're often kind of parodied or undercut. So in this, Keaton sets up a potential romance with like the ranch owner's daughter that he's working as a cowboy for, uh, only to reveal that it's actually all a set up to a gag in which he asks the ranch owner for his cow and not his daughter's hand in marriage. <laughs> Emphasising once again, the only romance in this film is between Keaton and the cow. Uh, it's also notable for featuring this great moment where uh, another cowboy tries to force Keaton at gunpoint to break his stone face expression and actually smile, but to no avail. Uh-huh. Hugely, hugely entertaining. So, kicking myself I've missed it for so long, but it's nice to have a fresh Keaton experience. Mm. Your turn, sir. All right, so I watched one more movie, uh, which is uh, a little a little film, you know, that I assume you've never heard of. Mm-hmm. Gonna make that guess. Uh, called The Red Spectacles. 
Never heard of it. Uh, it is the live action debut of the anime director Mamoru Oshii, whose film Ghost of the Shell I've talked about on this program before. Mm-hmm. And it is uh, part of his kind of dense and uh, inaccessible Kerberos um, Panzer Corps series. <laughs> which was a manga series that has been adapted into a couple of films and radio dramas and anime movies and all sorts of stuff. Mm-hmm. Uh, and this is the sort of, well, I guess it was the second non-manga um, adaptation of this work. Uh, and it, there's this very complicated and kind of hard to understand uh, alternate history that informs the series where Basically, because of rising crime rates, the uh, Japanese police force gets more and more militarized. They have these like weird robot suits. But um, there's an incident where uh, someone who commits a misdemeanor is beat to death. And then all of this, the militarized police force gets uh, made illegal. And (laughs) that's that's all stuff that happens before the movie starts. Mm -hmm. (laughs) It's very important backstory. Uh, the the first uh, fifteen or so minutes uh, follow this uh, these three police officers who are this you know it's called Protect Gear it's just this you know kind of robot suit type thing uh, as they are trying to flee uh, Japan and uh, the police um, basically six an army of vigilantes on them. And they gun down like a hundred people, uh, but unfortunately, two of them get injured and are left behind. One of them escapes to parts unknown, uh, and he will be our main character in the second part of the film, where three years later he returns to Japan to um, try to reunite with the squad mates that he left behind. Okay. Okay. <laughs> now, uh, what I've described to you sounds like a pretty serious film, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, what makes this film so admirable and one of the best things I've seen in quite some time is that it veers wildly from sort of bizarre esoteric philosophical ramblings to dystopian like um, fascist uh, aesthetics to uh, very sort of um, immature and um What's the word? Um, like vulgar comedy. Sophomoric. Yeah, sophomoric is a, a good place to put it. Uh, just to give you an example of uh, the film sense of humor, there is a uh, <laughs> runny joke where um, the uh, villains of the film who uh, <laughs> are, uh, are th- this regime, uh, which is identified as a, the cat regime, <laughs> Uh, in contrast to the main character uh, who is identified as a dog. <laughs> but the running joke is that agents of the cat regime knock uh, the main character out by poisoning his ramen or his soba with uh, <laughs> uh, salt that gives him uh, extreme diarrhea, <laughs> you know, which <laughs> causes him to you know, run to find the nearest bathroom and pass out uh, when he can't do so. Uh, which is extremely funny, um, but it's just full of these bizarre idiosyncratic touches, like the fact that uh, stand up 
uh, like noodle bars have been outlawed in this new Japan, and that they need to go to underground soba joint in order to get a bowl of soba, which is really <laughs> funny. Um, and it has this very particular and odd style that uh, it definitely feels like a manga adaptation in that the camera doesn't move much, but it's the frames are filled with these like bizarre incidences. And it's not to say this is a slow film by any means, because it's, you know there's like several sequences that are very rapidly edited together. Uh, but I thought it was hysterically funny and also uh, kind of poetic and moving um, at the end. And uh, you know, if you watch Ghost of the Shell, which is like this very serious sort of you know meditation on you know the meaning of existence and. Uh, uh, I don't know, like cyber systems or whatever, uh, does not prepare you at all for the extreme wacky comedy of this movie, uh, which I think makes it uh, really something memorable and strange. Uh, and uh, kind of, it has a very sort of Kafka-esque tone. And it also reminds me a lot of Terry Gillum's Brazil, which I was not expecting either, but it has a very sort of similar vibe of like uh, this weird like dystopian nightmare that is interrupted by just... Um, no, it's, I think it's 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 definitely more soft work than Brazil is. Um, so Kafka, but, Gilliam with a shot of Wong Jing. Yeah, yeah, pretty much. Um, but uh, I really, really loved it a lot, and um, I would encourage you uh, to watch it uh, if you can find it. It's a very mm-hmm. strange film, but I think its curious qualities uh, reward the journey, you know? Okie dokie. That's the red spectacles. Uh, the next one I watched was from, ready for it, 1926. Directed by and starring, that's right, Buster Keaton. And the film was Battling Butler, mm. which is the other film in his uh, original feature run, which I had not seen. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, so he's also the sole credited director on this film as well. Now, this was based on a play, actually a musical of the same name. So this is much more tightly plotted than Go West. So it's essentially a farce in which uh, Keaton plays this upper-class idol rich person who, after a camping trip, falls in love with a mountain girl. Mm-hmm but is not accepted by her burly brother and father when he wants to uh, ask her hand in marriage because he's too weak. Mm. Now, coincidentally, he happens to have the same name as a boxer that he and his butler read about in the paper. So the reason it's called Battling Butler is that the, the Keaton character is called Alfred Butler. It's not that he's a butler, but he does have a butler. Okay. So when his uh, butler goes to the family to ask for the daughter to see Keaton and and, uh, receive his proposal, they say that that she can't marry him because he's too weak. So the butler, thinking on his feet, says, what are you talking about? Look, he's a famous boxer and points to the newspaper. Mm. So then they agree to marry her. So then they have to keep up this ruse for a period of time, right? Uh Uh-huh. And, uh, you know, fast in shoes. And uh, I really have no criticisms for, th- for this film. Wow. 
at all. It is like it is like more tightly plotted than I think Keaton necessarily needs. Mm. But I can't deny that it actually works well here and that he's he's really good in the role. And it's consistently entertaining, it's consistently enjoyable and inspired. There's nothing wrong with it. It's good stuff. I it was I thought it was going to be quite racist at one point. Narrowly, it wasn't that racist. So. <laughs> <laughs> well, then. <laughs> How many more uh, Keatons do you have left to watch? That's I th- I've seen all his feature films of his initial run before he signed his disastrous deal with MGM. What about the ones that people like from the MGM period, like the cameraman? Yeah, I've seen, I've seen that. I've seen the two that people like from that period. Spite Marriage. Yeah, I think, I think it's just the first two. Which I think are the only two that he actually directed. So he's not credited as the director on The Cameraman, but I think he had creative control over that film. Mm. And that was pr- pretty much the last time. All right, what fucking shitty silent comedy did you watch next? <laughs> <laughs> uh, the next one was a rewatch. And I went back mm. and rewatched uh, Safety Last. Mm. Which uh, not only is it Howard Lloyd's most iconic film, I think it's also his most acclaimed, I would say. That might change over the coming years as they uh, uh, revisit his entire body of work. But, uh, yeah, Safety Last has always had the reputation as, as his, his masterpiece. Mm. And you know what? It probably is. Although I think Girlshy is competitive with it. Mm. Safety Last is a fitting uh, subject for our podcast because it's an iconic clock-hanging sequence famously inspired Project A, mm. after which we named our masterful podcast. I just, I just heard about Jackie filming that scene. Now, uh, to return to my discussion of how uh, the silent clowns transition from two real films to feature-length films and how the narratives uh, change to kind of support that, I think Safety Last is actually a really great balance between the more sophisticated storytelling of Girl Shy and uh, Battling Butler and those two real comedies that have that looser gag-based feel. Because this, this finds a, a nice balance between the two modes and, uh, and I find that really pleasing. It is, mm. I think, a masterwork of silent comedy. And the extended famous sequence where Howard Lloyd is, is scaling this uh, skyscraper is surely a contender for the greatest sustained action sequence of, of the silent comedy era. Mm. So a lot of it was done with trick photography to an extent in that it wasn't as dangerous as it appeared to be. But nonetheless, for a huge amount of this film, Howard Lloyd actually has to scale a building, even though if he fell, he would have just landed on a platform not far below the bottom of the frame. It's a lot of physical effort to actually scale a building um, and hang on these tiny ledges and dangle from the clock in the famous sequence, and it looks like it would have been hellish to actually achieve. Uh, he did have a stunt double for some of the further exterior shots where you just see like a tiny figure scaling an actual building. But for the most part, it's just one fixed angle. Right. And it's kind of ingeniously worked out because you, as he scales the different levels, 
it allows an opportunity for different participants and kind of different gag setups each time. So it's a really neat idea while also playing into the general thread of the plot. And the way this has all worked out is just such a joy to behold. And it's very entertaining. Also racist at a couple of points. That's <laughs> <laughs> par for the course for... Uh, yeah. Yep. Silent comedy. I guess silent films in general. At least Hollywood ones. It's, that's how it, it's, basically, it's basically any Hollywood film up until a certain period. You mean the modern day? Yeah. <laughs> Even now. But yeah, it's kind of particularly unpleasant in the context of like frothy silent comedies. It's like, hey, remember racism? <laughs> All right. Uh, One other thing I just wanted to close the loop on, in terms of uh, some interesting developments in the careers of uh, some people involved in these productions. So you've already alluded to the fact that Harold Lloyd became a nude photographer. I did. When his career declined. But I also want to talk about Clyde Bruckman. Mm. So he was a he came up as a gag man, uh, worked with Keaton, and uh, co-wrote and co-directed. A number of his films, including The General, famously. After the silent era transitioned into sound, his experience as, in silent comedy got him a position being a gag man for The Three Stooges and other comics. Uh-huh. But it got to the point where he basically resorted to reusing old gags from Harold Lloyd and Buster Keaton films. Right. Uh-huh. And uh, Lloyd started suing him for it. Even though one of the sequences that he had lifted from a Harold Lloyd sound picture called Movie Crazy was actually co-directed by him in the first place. So it could have possibly been his gag in the first place. But he ended up reusing it in a a Three Stooges picture. And uh, Lloyd sued Columbia, the, the, the studio he was working for at the time, and won. I think it happened more than once, and... It ruined his reputation. Then at one point, he asked Keaton, who he was still friends with. In fact, I think he got Keaton a job at Columbia. And uh, he asked Keaton to borrow his forty-five caliber pistol, saying that he needed it for a hunting trip. And uh, then he went to a restroom at a local restaurant and shot himself in the head. So there you go. Nice. All's well that ends well. <laughs> <laughs> so it seems. And on that note, <laughs> we'll see you next week. Off-brand.